Come on around back, Arizona, Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour of Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. If you're following along in your homeowner handbook, you know today we're talking trees, we're talking composting, and the tree of the month that we'll start off with is the Texas Live Oak. But if you would like to join the conversation and talk with Justin Rahner of Agriscaping about anything in particular with your landscape or garden, one 767 4348 one triple eight Rosie for you. Text questions can be sent to four one one nine two three during the broadcast, and you can also email us at info at rosieonthehouse.com if you need to snap a picture or a short video of, for plant or insect identification or to describe whatever project you're working on. Send those to info at rosieonthehouse.com. Mr. Ronner. Well, it's a beautiful morning, and uh, if you've gone you outside... long sleeves on. I have long <laughs> sleeves on. It's it's cool. It's kind of chilly out there. I even brought a jacket, but, you know, that's uh, a, a rarity here in the Phoenix area. But it's a beautiful thing to have, the opportunity to take a layer off and still enjoy your day. Um, I, I think it's it's amazing. We, we love Arizona, especially this time of year. And as you're going outside, that little cool breeze and the rustling of the leaves across the ground one of the first leaves that's making that sound is actually that from the southern live oak beautiful tree beautiful tree it's a beautiful evergreen i would call it a semi evergreen because it's not a really bright green it's kind of a a darker green with a little bit of a a bluish hue to the underside of those leaves but uh definitely a mainstay here for a lot of landscapes and uh, a very strong support tree in your landscape if you'd like to have it there's so many things we could talk about with the southern live oak because it it has been around a really long time in arizona as a staple to um sidewalks and other things um but uh i I love the tree for a variety of reasons which we'll probably get into and it's one of the more slower growing trees well it's when you can when you compare it to the you know like a mesquite or a palo verde or but they become very massive trees with the proper watering and space. Absolutely. Watering space and actually drainage. So that's another key component to making sure that your southern live oak is going to survive and survive well is that you got at least some support of drainage. And that's about by the fifth year. So in the first five years, once you plant a tree, if you got like a 15-gallon tree, the southern live oak actually grows relatively quickly in the tall, you know, kind of grows tall. Um, it calipers, so the, the, the size of the trunk grows about an inch in diameter each and every year. And so that's pretty nice, but it's a few feet in terms of its growth. Um, And then it starts to slow down after about the fifth or sixth year. Now, one of the main reasons they slow down is because they're constricted in their root growth. So if you want it to continue to grow big and amazing, you know, huge, nice big oak tree, one of the first components is that deep drainage below the three-foot mark to be able to support the growth of that tree long-term. And I've seen some of these things just die in in a summer because of the lack of that drainage, but still continued to be watered in, a, in an excessive way. So are you saying i got to, like, excavate six feet of dirt and build some kind of special soil composition before I plant a live oak? Well, if you got more money than time or more time than money, <laughs> if you got a lot of something that you can invest into doing something, that might be useful, but there's other ways to do it that are a lot, a lot more cost-effective. So one way that we do in helping out these southern live oaks really sustain and grow much bigger and uh, longer is we'll actually drill in auger holes. So you can even use, um, we call them water drills, and it's basically a pressure washer. You can basically drill holes down and create, kind of get through the deadpan because there's often construction debris or construction compact 
that is about three feet down on most neighborhoods, these modern neighborhoods, that if you don't drill through that, it doesn't have any means for the water to really drain through the root system, and it can cause uh, a lot of rot in those roots, which killed a tree almost instantly. And so that's one of the ways we do that. You just get around uh, perimeter of that tree, kind of in that drip zone, and you can drill down through that space. We've had some neighborhoods we had to go down nine feet just to get through the compact because of how the soil was engineered before we found because you, know, you need a, a solid foundation for your home, <laughs> right? And and the homes these days, you know, they're built in in more mass, and so they're actually engineering the entire property rather than just the pad where your house is going to be. Well, in those big equipment, it's hard to do like a little section area. It's easier exactly. to do the whole thing. <laughs> yep, just do the whole thing. Do do miles of it at a time kind of thing. Do, you know, do blocks at a time, and that's how they set them up. And, but, and when they do that, obviously, it, it hyper-compacts the soil, which is a problem, again, a few years into the growth pattern, not usually in the first year. And you'll find that in newer subdivisions, that at first trees look good, and they're anticipating them looking great in five years. And then five years down the road, they've probably changed three of their varieties of trees because they don't actually work. And they have to totally swap them out with something else or they have to mitigate the issues. So that's something to think about. Interesting. Now, how much space should I plan for a live oak given the right circumstances? So, the, the space, soil, height. I mean, you really need to plan for it. You do need a plan for it, and it's kind of you have to consider, well, how big do you want this thing to get? I mean, you can constrict the root growth, and it will stunt its growth and stay pretty small, like the one I parked out in the in the <laughs> parking lot this morning. You know, yeah, that one— You want to stunt some growth, plant it inside of a concrete barrier. <laughs> exactly, but that lets you see that even with a with a southern live oak, if you if you can get it into—if you've got good structural support around it, its, its roots will grow— you know, down rather than across, it's not going to break anything up. So you can get closer to a wall, perhaps, you know, within five feet, not have any major issues. But over time, again, if you're going past the 30-year mark, now you're going to start having some issues because they are slower growing. They'll grow fast in the first few years and grow tall for you and create that, that uh, maybe that hedging effect that you might want. But then it's going to start growing and expanding over time. Uh, and so minimum for me, if I'm if I'm wanting a tree now and I want it to be good for me for the first five years, great option, and I can keep it within a five-foot space from a wall. But anything beyond that time frame, I'm going to want at least 10 feet from a wall and 10 feet from a foundation, and the tree can easily justify that. Ideal scenario, 20 feet. You know, ideal scenario, 20 feet for almost any major shade tree in order to allow it to establish itself as well as grow to the size that you might really want it to grow. I mean, there's some beautiful specimens across the country, southern United States, of these southern live oak trees. Um, and uh, and they're literally over a 1,000 years old, some of these specimen trees that are out there. So very long-standing, very tough tree. It can hack. It can handle any, any weather that gets thrown out to it. Now, there's the southern live oak, but then there's also the Texas live oak. There's similarities but variations as well correct and those are mostly in the same family of oak tree i mean it's like today we have a lot of hybrids and other ones that have been specially cultivated and they have a very similar growth habit both the texas live oak and the southern live oak really come from the same family texas just wanted their own name to something but you know <laughs> that never happens right <laughs> it's a unique scenario where texas said we need to name a tree we we need to have a texas in front right, right. yep <laughs> So beautiful tree, great, neat space, beautiful shade tree. Like you said, it's an you, you called it a semi evergreen because it's of the color of green. It will turn in the winter time. But we have four remaining. 
We, we, we planted five. And you got four remaining? We do. Last but it wasn't, it wasn't the fault of anything other than uh, I had two neighbors run over the same tree within a week. <laughs> one of them forward, one of them backwards. I'm like, <laughs> that tree just wasn't meant to live. It wasn't meant to live. <laughs> that that was it... obviously bad placement. <laughs> yeah, and you'll learn about that. I guess now you just got to put a boulder in that spot before you put a tree, right? Something that <laughs> someone will hit that won't hurt the tree. Well, in the, in the southern live oak, I mean, in terms of its utility in your landscape, it's one that is a great it's a great tree to help with wildlife. If you if you like birds, it's a great tree that holds a lot of nesting birds. So if you want to bring and attract birds into your landscape, that's actually a great one. Uh, it provides provides a lot of cover. Uh, there's a lot of other cool things that provide food for a lot of things too. Those those little um, acorns that fall off. You can actually make oak, acorn butter yourself. I mean, we've done it a number of times at our place uh, where we had an oak tree in our front yard, and we'd uh, harvest those, roast them. We'd soak all the tannins out, and you can make a wonderful, sweet uh, nut butter out of the, the acorn. So it's on the edible list for me, and that's a, that's a top top hit for me. But also those crushed in your roadways are often being eaten by most of the doves around here. And you'll probably see them. If you see doves in the road, and they're pecking around. There's likely a live oak tree nearby that they're actually feeding off of. It's funny you mentioned both doves and the live oak is a great place for nesting. The last time I was trimming my oaks... I cut a branch, and it fell, and I'm looking eye level at a mama dove sitting on her nest. So I just, I left the tree as is. I'm like, all right, sorry, didn't mean to bother you there. And you know, after the birds flew the nest, then I finished cleaning up that tree. But I mean, it. And my daughter even says, our house, our yard sounds like an aviary sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes, and if you like birds, it's it is again a, a great tree. If you want to feel and experience the entire life cycle of a bird, especially the doves, the morning doves, and some of the other ringneck doves that we have around here in Arizona, live oak is probably your best nurse tree and support for that species and those species sets. So that's our tree of the month, the live oak, the Texas live oak or southern live oak. You can see them at a lot of local. I, mean, I think every local nursery carries the yeah. Uh, some kind of oak tree. Yep. Some people might call them a scrub oak or, you know, there's a number of different names for them out there, but usually it's the Texas live oak, Southern live oak, live oak. Sometimes white oak will be mislabeled, but all kind of fit in the same category. If you want an oak tree, that's the best one for, especially here in the Valley and across the the, the desert Southwest, really. And uh, you said across the desert Southwest, I was going to say up to probably three, 4,000 feet because you go down to Southern Arizona and there's a lot of oak trees native down there that are more like your shrub oaks yeah uh that you know that's three four thousand feet elevation you don't think you know you're going south if you're driving from phoenix but you're actually going up in elevation yep and with that to the border with the higher elevations they'll just lose more leaves in the in the fall and winter they're not going to lose all of them in most cases and uh, those things are great for composting. I mean, another subject of the day. Right? <laughs> and we'll, when we get back after break, that's what we'll talk about, composting and whatever you'd like to talk about. one 767 4348 That's one rosie for you or text 411-923. So tall a tree, so small a man. A man may grow for all he's worth, but only trees are down to earth. So tall a tree, so small a man. Well, you mentioned composting, and that's also on our homeowner handbook scheduled for today's talking points. And if you would like a copy of the homeowner handbook, it's something we mail out for free, and they're in print right now. 
and they're going to be mailed out at the end of the month. So <clears throat> just email us the address you would like it mailed to. It's a physical book, print, on paper, made from trees, uh, <laughs> and it's in a calendar form as well. And it gives you a preview of all the topics we have lined out for the year and talking points and feature partners and some of our partners put in their different seasonal ads and you know there's things that you invest in your home uh you know carpet cleaning window cleaning windows doors whatever uh roofing etc uh for example like this month if you look we have uh Pella windows and doors has an offer in there as well as uh arizona chimney and ducks as we're getting into the cooler season if you have if you're lucky enough to be in one of those older homes that still has a fire burning chimney you can get that cleaned out before the season starts or they also do dryer vent and air ducts so <clears throat> they'll save you a little money there if you're using the homeowner handbook and the calendar call to actions <clears throat> but november 11th we're talking Texas Live Oak, which we did last segment. Now we're going to talk composting. Yeah, and those trees, so even even with the these documents and papers, I mean, a lot of people are getting away from, you know, all the papers and stuff like that. Uh, but those are important components to your composting system. Tree-based products are very important to your composting system to have a healthy compost. Most people, when they think of compost, they're thinking, oh, it's my kitchen scraps. You know, thinking of all the smelly, messy stuff. They're thinking about how it attracts bugs. They're thinking about a lot of the negatives, oddly enough. When we talk to people about composting, many people first start there. But they know that it's a good idea. You know, they know it's a, it's it's better to compost stuff than to just send it to the local, you know, the local dumps. You know, there's a lot of things. But tree-based resources are also a major component. We call it the, you got your greens and you got your browns. And if you don't mix the greens and the browns in the proper rotation or the proper order, you're going to end up with the mess and all the problems that people consider when they're thinking about their compost bins. But those are the things that we need to be talking about is greens and browns. Greens are the things that really get slimy as they break down. That's the stuff that's usually your kitchen waste. And browns are the things that get more dry and brown as they break down. But when you mix the two together, you get a really awesome blend that breaks down faster for each other and also creates a more balanced nutrient for your garden if you wanted to use that compost again for your garden and your other plants around your landscape and are you, are you going for a 50 50 green and brown or a 60 40 what well it, it depends on what level of education you want to dive into if you want to go to a doctorate level we're not going to just talk about that <laughs> but if the basics are green plus brown equals black gold and so we're talking about that wonderful little rose golds, the uh, little roses that you can get there. So the, this is another way to get some gold in your landscape. Something of great, deep, and meaningful value long-term in your landscape is getting that black gold that you can create yourself from the mix of those greens and from the browns. And greens, for the most part, are going to be things that look green if it's coming from your landscape, your kitchen scraps from your from uh, inside your house, you know, the little rinds and stuff that you're peeling off the all those things can go in. That's considered your green mass stuff. But then your browns would be like shredded paper or as your trees that you have in your yard are deciduous and they're dropping their leaves, those crispy brown leaves are also considered those browns. Wood chip, also a brown. You know, and those are important components. We always like to go green and then brown because if you top it off with the brown, what it also does is it helps uh, hold the moisture within the system to be able to help your compost break down faster. And, and the ideal compost, in my mind, there's two types. you got cold composting and you got hot composting. Cold composting attracts uh, bugs and other creatures that will help break it down for you. So if you are okay with that, then 
go with a cold composting system. A cold composting system would be anything, any compost with an inner temperature less than really 95 degrees. Anything less than 95 degrees is considered a cold composting system and attracts bugs and attracts other creatures in order to help break those things down. Now, if you can get your compost pile blended well and moist, the internal temperature, because of micro, my, microbial activity, actually increases into your sweet spot between 140 degrees and 160 degrees is like the major sweet spot for breaking down compost and actually deterring bugs and other creatures from getting inside of it. And so that's a, a major component. So if you think about that, if I've got my compost pile dialed in right, I'm going to actually deter all the major issues that most people have as concerns, even the smelliness. Now, to go to a hot compost, I mean, you, you have to add manure. Uh, what, what are we doing to add that extra heat? Not necessarily. Manure is a great activator, that's for sure. If I put manure in there and I mix some, I mix some other greens in with that or even some other browns in that, and I get it moist, in a morning like this morning or yesterday morning, it's like you'll see it steaming. And that's a good sign. Now, but we want to make sure it always stays moist, kind of like a sponge, you know, after it's gotten wet. If your compost is really dry, like that sponge that's curled up on your countertop in the kitchen, you know, if you've got one of those, that, that's, that's a good thing to consider and realize that when you put that, the sponge underneath the water, it doesn't, it, the water just kind of bounces off of it at first, right? It just goes around it. And then eventually it swells up and then it holds a lot of that moisture and the water can go through it. We want it like that moist sponge. That's how moist you want your compost to be in order for the bioactivity to really work effectively. And if it's at that state, and a lot of people were starting to add, uh, you know, their water lines and little spray emitters to their compost bin, highly recommended. A lot of those upper tumbler ones often fail because they end up just becoming uh, more of a rock tumbler with a bunch of dry <laughs> material in it that's being rounded and softened rather than composting and breaking down. And, and so that's that's important to just make sure you get some form of moisture in there if you want it to actually break down and turn into something that you can use. Now, there is a place down in South Phoenix that three dairies all contribute their manure from their dairy cows, mm -hmm. and they do their own composting. And it's really interesting because you go through, and they've got thermometers through these piles to yep. regulate temperature. How hot is too hot? Well, again, your, your sweet range is between 140 degrees and 160 degrees. If you get above that, you're going to get some different problems that might cause some major issues down the road. Got scraps you don't want to keep Don't throw them out Just throw them into the compost heap Yeah, the compost heap Vegetable and fruit peels Eggshells too If you don't need Welcome them, back to Rosie on the House If you're just joining us after Bottom of the hour news break We're halfway through our outdoor living hour With Justin Rahner of Agriscaping In studio with us today And we've got... Uh, the line's open, one 767 4348 That's 1-888-ROSIE for you. And then we've got uh, text as well, 411923. And we were talking composting last segment. We had a texter want to know, uh, what about coffee grounds and will that keep and deter bugs? So coffee grounds are great to add to your compost. Actually, you can add them directly into your garden, very high in nitrogen. And so when we talk greens and browns, when we say greens, we're really talking about nitrogen composition. And this actually fits. So coffee grounds fits the greens category. And so it's going to be a high source of nitrogen. It's got some organic matter in it as well. It's got a lot of beneficial bacteria that actually help in breaking down 
your compost as well. So it is a great add to your compost and to your garden in general. It doesn't deter pests. It can because it does shift the smell. But really what it's doing is it's helping your compost break down faster in a sweeter fashion rather than a sour and stinky fashion. And that's an important piece of the puzzle. It's got a good aerobic bacteria that are in there. And the aerobic bacteria makes for a sweeter compost pile. If it gets anaerobic, then it gets really stinky. So that's kind of your offset. What, what type of bacteria we're trying to cultivate to have a sweet and very um, a very healthy compost pile, we're looking for the aerobic type uh, approach. And so air infusion, water in there, all the ingredients to make a good aerobic system of composting. And the caffeine doesn't break it down any faster? The caffeine, it might, uh, it might, I don't know. You know, that's a good question. I haven't, haven't really looked at it at that level in terms of speed. It's like when we're looking through microscopes, we're not, you know, checking in on the speed of the, the microbes. <laughs> but hey, we could check, we could test that out. It's worth that's testing a, out. That's what we're test, we're testing out. Any ASU uh, grad student looking for a new project and, you know, this type of bioactive stuff. Hey, let's look at that. So speaking of speed of plant growth, uh, reminds me of something I saw recently that I kind of had tagged to ask our our outdoor living hosts about. Have you ever heard anything about electroculture? Electroculture, yes, I've heard a lot about, it, especially recently. It's uh, I don't know if it's a fad or a new. It's it's an interesting thing. So people are putting. Car, uh, basically uh, copper coils and sticking them into the ground. And we got plenty of copper in Arizona, one yeah, of our we got, founding five Cs. It's one of our Cs. And, and in, in putting those in the garden, there's a, there's a lot of, um, I guess there's theory and there's lore, there's legend. You know, there's a lot of things around it. One of my favorite things about it is for every garden I've seen one of those in, the activity of the homeowner has increased tenfold in their garden. And so to know if it's actually having an effect on the plants or if it's just the fact that people are paying more attention to their garden and caring for them more, I, you know, I don't know. It's hard for me to tell because of all the other factors associated with seeing those in the garden and peeping, people investing in the growth of their garden. There's certainly a lot of value in uh, creating some ionic shifts as well as kind of having some uh, electric currents in your garden. We know that that exists within root structures. And so in, in expanding root structures, having some electrolysis, some, some movement of electrons that are going through the soil and increasing that with copper wire, that's a viable thing, I think. I think in the least, like I said, people care for their garden more when I see those in their garden and their gardens grow better. So, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like water witching. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, 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 I, I've never been able to do it, but I've seen plenty of people do it, and, and it's like, how, do, how does that even? I, I don't know. Maybe my hands aren't right, or I don't have the right frequency going through, or whatever. But I mean, you can find water using metal rods yep. and, and you got the walking. divining rods. You got the all the little sticks and stuff like that. So there's ways to do that. So there, there is, without a doubt, there is magnetic activity happening on the earth. I mean, anytime you pick up a, an old fashioned compass, you can see that there's a mag, there's magnetism in existence where you're at because it'll shift to a point north. So if there's any movement like that, and we have metal in the ground, it's going to shift how that magnet, that magnetism and all that, how that moves. And so how that affects the growth of our plants, how that affects us, all those things, 
it's still being studied. Who's to say? But- <laughs> Who's to say exactly? But again, there's so many factors that go into gardening. Is that the one that's going to solve it for you? Well, if you stop watering your garden and stick one of those in, it won't work. <laughs> you know, have you ever heard of um, earthing? Earthing? Is that where you like take your shoes off yeah, and so walk on the ground? It's kind of the same yeah. concept where you have your bare feet to the ground and walk around, and that's supposed to bring in the, the benefits of the magnetism and the minerals and stuff. But they also have these little gadgets where you have a, a little unit you put outside, and then it trails into your bedroom, and then you stick it in your bed, and it's supposed to help you while you're sleeping. Oh, interesting. I, I don't know about all that stuff, but it just seems like if all you have to do is put your feet on the ground to get it done, then a plant would just be able to do its thing. Yep, it's well, only there for it, right? Getting, it doesn't need extra help. I don't know. Yeah, getting grounded, I think, is an important piece for any human activity. I mean, getting grounded, <laughs> you know, and that's that's an important piece. And I definitely highly recommend take your shoes off, you know, get in some grass, get in some good soil, you know, uh, and not around a, you know, a cactus by any means, but, you know, to, <laughs> to really get into some good healthy soil, get around something, good composted material on the ground, walking on that. It does, it revitalizes us in ways that we probably can't fully comprehend. And that's, that's an understandable. And it's got to be more than just your hands. Cause there's something about, you know, when you're working with the compost in your hands and you're gardening and you're planting, you know, whether it's vegetables or seeds or starter plants or seasonal flowers, you know, working with that soil when you're done, you always just feel better. Yes. Well, and there, and there's there's many studies out there for people that get in the dirt, that are around the dirt and getting it on their hands and stuff that they actually live healthier lives. They're less susceptible to ailments and illnesses or that their bodies recover faster from ailments. Uh, especially things that are viral and, you know, you know, colds and other things like that. It, all that can be benefited by simply being in the dirt a little bit more. It increases your immunity to many other things. And it's an important component, I think, to all humanity is we're always connected to the earth in some way. Every food that people eat has grown somewhere. <laughs> it has to be there. We're not just eating chemicals. And if you are, you're probably finding your, your health deteriorating, and that's, that's a fact. And we'll get back, getting back to the ground, planting and, and growing and cultivating. But uh, one more thing while we're kind of off this that always comes to mind is, you know, like uh, there's a lot of studies out there that say sunscreen's bad and you should actually go out and stare at the sun, uh, not with your eyes open, but like <laughs> eyes closed to the sun, grounded uh, for a few minutes before you're in the sun. And that creates a natural sunscreen versus these chemical applications that uh, don't we can have an adverse re- effect? Well, it's you know, if food so is your medicine, let medicine be your food. I mean, those kind of things. <laughs> there are some definite studies out there that prove that when you're growing tomatoes in an area that has a lot of sun, and you're living in that environment, and you're eating the tomato grown from where you live, that the nutrients in there and everything helps support you against the elements that are where you live. And, and so there's a lot of that going on as well. And so if I can eat the thing that's already in the environment that might be abrasive to me, it's going to help the skin and on the outer part of myself that would otherwise be abrasive to me. So eating healthy, growing stuff on your own has many more health benefits than just obviously eating vegetables. You know? And when you're talking about eating local and everything, I've, I've heard that if you can find honey source locally, it helps you with your, if you have allergies, because these bees are digesting the local pollens and converted into honey and, and digested through your system, it builds up your immune. Again, I have no idea. Well, from my own experience, it, I'd say that's absolutely true because I was allergic to like everything, even to the point that I got allergic to soil. 
And so if I'm working in the soil, my, my skin would blister up and chafe up. And if I rub my eyes, I look like a, a raccoon with these red scaly, you know, I, it was bad. Yeah, and I was able to shift away from the allergies by actually increasing my health and how I ate. And so I did. I had to focus on eating more local stuff, you know, getting away from the things that I was absolutely not working well with. Because allergies are basically an overreaction of our body f- to a foreign element. But if you get the element in you already, it does, it's not then considered foreign. And so that's part of the theory behind a lot of it. But it's been proven, I know in my life, it definitely changed for me when I started being more locally oriented in my growth habits and what I ate. It definitely shifted how I was affected by the pollens and other things out there. Well, let's get into that local. I mean, this is a great growing season for, uh, for, for, for vegetable gardening uh, and a lot of great uh, flower options are available as well for to increase and attract pollinators, add color, and uh, and stimulating growth. I mean, just I, I always look at flowers. You know, we like to plant stuff we eat, but uh, we also like to plant stuff that attracts wildlife, pollinators, hummingbirds, bees, etc. Mm-hmm. I mean, those those go together. Even though you may not directly eat a dandelion or a Oh, but you can. You you can. <laughs> yes. Go for it. <laughs> Not all of them, but, you know, the, the, it, this this time of year is one of my favorite times of year in Arizona for edible flowers in particular. And if you got allergies, one of my favorite ones out there is actually the pansy, anything in the viola family. It's got natural antihistamines in it, vitamin C, vitamin E, a lot of the nutrients that your body needs to then really support yourself in, in, in the... I guess, away from your uh, your allergies. And that's one of the keys that, you know, my kids, if they have any allergy symptoms, I have them go outside and eat five pansies, put the timer on for 30 minutes, and see if their symptoms subside. And since following that protocol, for us, it's not for everybody, but for us, then we didn't have to take the medications that we did previously to to combat the symptoms that we were having with our with our allergies. The, the, the pansies actually had a great effect on us, uh, even in the short term to be able to, to help us out. So pansies, beautiful flowers. Uh, Dianthus, another great one. Also one you could add to a salad. Beautiful this time of year, all the way through April. Um, you got calendula, which is also really good for your skin. If you want to use the calendula oils, that's one of the main ingredients in most eczema treatments, uh, which I had to use a lot of but have less need now because uh, I'm growing them. I'm eating them. I'm, I've got them in my space. And that your garden can really not only heal you from the optics but also from the things they produce. Their waste is actually something of use to you. And uh, all of humanity, really, if you start paying attention to that, you know, shifting the way we look at our gardens really can change the way we relate not only to each other, but how we relate to our environment. Here's my soapbox for the day. (laughs) So outside of edible flowers, uh, vegetables, I mean, there's nothing you can't be planting vegetable wise for the next four or five months. And we often talk about, you know, don't plant it all at once, plant it over phases so that you're harvesting constantly. Not everything's ripe and ready at once. You've got, you know, staged planting. So you've got, uh, you know, produce all year long. Yeah. You don't have to can it and save it for later, but as, cause you're harvesting as on an as needed basis and you've got the vegetables there to harvest. Yeah, make gardening a part of just your everyday. You know, eating's part of your everyday. And so we'll start with the the initial point of food. You know, you got to garden a little bit every day. If you do that rather than binge gardening, you know, that's what we want to avoid is avoid the binge gardening because what will happen is that you'll 
throw a bunch of stuff in, and then you may not even pay attention to it unless you're putting those copper coils out there. Maybe pay attention <laughs> a little bit more. But if you're not going to pay attention to it, it might overrun. Things might not go well. And then either you're going to have a ton of produce already at one time, or you're going to have none, and you're going to have a big problem. So it's better to make it a routine anyway. So if you're making it routine, planting a little bit every week, maybe weekly is your cycle. Daily is often the cycle I live in. But maybe weekly is the right cycle for you and just make it a regular part of your day. On a beautiful Arizona Saturday morning, I, we talk a lot that we should have a microphone in the studio to record conversations that happen during commercial break because those those can be just as funny and interesting whether it's you know our commentary or callers that have come in or email questions etc but we got pretty deep into actual recipe for composting during the break that's probably worth repeating on air we were talking you know is it a 50 50 green brown mix what's your proper ratio and uh rosie's testimony on how to Save money not buying a tumbler. <laughs> <laughs> well, a you know, composting tumbler. Compost when you when you get into it a little bit more. See, there's different layers of it. It's like how you know you can have music and then you can have jazz. You know, where you got all these different instruments that all blend together, and it, you know, like there's there's a lot going on inside of that space. And the recipe for composting is similar. It's like you want to have, uh, you don't want to have just one thing going all the time or just two things. Like I'm not just putting you know, one type of brown and one type of green and trying to mix that together. A diversity of things being blended together, it makes for a better compost, uh, both short-term and long-term. And so when we look at a compost recipe, we've talked about green plus brown equals black gold. Well, let's break that down a little bit. Let's look at some of the browns, like, or let's look at the greens first. Greens um, are a lot of, again, slimy stuff. So it's your kitchen scraps, it's your you know, peelings from whatever you're peeling uh, in your in your kitchen. It's your um, it's your coffee grounds. You know, that's a lot of your green stuff. Even you know, fresh trimmings from your grass, especially your your grass that your green grass that you're probably growing right now through the winter time. You know, your rise and perennial rise very much on the green side. High nitrogen, very slimy when they break down, and then that stuff is one part of green, that compressed stuff to about thirty parts brown. Now, when I say 30 parts found, I'm talking by volume. So if I've got a bunch of leaf, I've got a bunch of leaf waste, I've got shredded paper, it's got a lot of volume to it, we're talking by volume. So if I have one shovel full of leaf, obviously it weighs a lot less, but that's one shovel full and that's one part carbon to then one shovel full of my kitchen waste, which is going to be very dense, very slimy. I'm going to need literally about 30 parts of that to make a really good blend. And I'm going to mix them together or I could layer them where I've got a kind of got a lasagna system, but the brown is always the top part. And that helps ensure that you have a, the right ratio that then can break down quickly and sweetly. So it's attracting more of that aerobic bacteria that then helps things break down. And that's one of the challenges, like with the tumblers we were talking about. Like a tumbler can be useful, but you never can have just one. Because once you've filled up a tumbler, if you keep adding to it, then it's never going to fully break down enough and you're going to be pulling out material that you've been told should be good for your garden, but you've got chunks of banana peel and eggshells and other things that are still in it and you're throwing that in your garden. It just looks like you just put your trash out in your garden. That's not what we're looking at doing. Uh, the other thing is could be extremely dry and not even breaking down. And so 
If you're going to do tumbler, get two and make sure that you're watering them, water them regularly. And by regularly, I mean it's so that the moisture inside is like that of a sponge. But the recipe-wise, you know, you've got a lot of different ratios. Uh, there's, we go into some major science in the Agriscaping Mastery Program, if that's of interest to you, or taking on some of our free classes at agriscaping.com. I check that out because it's hard to get, even in this little amount of time, enough information to help people go to the next level. So we've given you enough to get started. Green plus brown equals black gold. And more brown than green and water. And if we can mix those together and get a nice ratio, it'll break down well and your, your temperature. And so getting a temperature probe, good idea. Because if it's below 140 degrees, you're attracting bugs. And as soon as you get above 140 degrees, and really once you get above 105, it starts deterring most of the major pests and you're not going to be attracting that as a problem. Now, if the temperature is lower then what it is, it's attracting bugs. But those bugs are there to help break it down. And ones that will do it are things like cockroaches, crickets, earwigs, uh, isopods, those little roly-polies. Everything that you pay the exterminator to kill. Exactly. And you'll be <laughs> attracting them to your garden if you don't have the temperature right now. If you do want to keep a cold setup, you can actually bring one indoors and do vermicomposting with worms. But that's a contained system. That's a contained approach. Very effective, and it doesn't need the heat. Worms do great at breaking down a lot of stuff and create compost that is sweet. And it has a lot of other beneficial byproducts. I've got one underneath my sink. And that's what I would recommend everybody to have is your first place to go is a vermicomposting system inside. But that takes a little bit more knowledge and know-how because you do have living organisms that you're cultivating inside your house. So just be aware of that. And you said something in this segment that I wanted to dive in just a little bit more on. You, you We went really quick over using grass as composting, and we do get asked that a lot. You can use it, but your ratio has to match. Correct. People don't – you know – especially the rye grasses, you know, they grow great. They're very wet. You have to have a lot of dry material and very few yards and landscape produce enough dry material as fast as you get your greens off of cutting your lawn. Correct. And so that's part of the challenge. But then you start looking to your in-home use of paper products and things like that. Get a paper shredder. Use that. That's a great source to recycle here. It's much cheaper and better for the environment for you to recycle in your compost bin than to send it to your compost or to send it to your uh, recycling centers here. A lot of our recycled product doesn't really doesn't really be manufactured here. It's packed and and stacked and then sent overseas. I mean, it sounds kind of weird, but that's what we do with a lot of our recycled products from some of our cities. Many of them are starting to make some shifts to make it more locally recycled and usable. Um, but yeah, if you can shred your own paper, shred your own stuff, and use that in your compost bin with your grass, it'll break down in a much better way, healthier for you, the environment, and your compost that won't attract so many bugs and problems. <laughs> Well, thanks for spending your Saturday morning with us. It's Justin Rahner of Agriscaping. And if you would like to talk to Justin further, uh, you can reach out agriscaping.com. How do you spell that? A-G-R-I-S-C-A-P-I-N-G.com. And it's that concept of agriscaping is creating an elegant, edible landscape. You got it. I love it. You know, taste the beauty. <laughs>